0: Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I am your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Dane Hillard. Dane is the book author of Practices of the Python Pro, and he is a lead web application developer at Ithaca, a nonprofit in higher education. Dane, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Ben, thanks a lot for having me.
0: Absolutely, man. Uh, Call this an icebreaker or call it what you will, but I'm gonna kick it off with this. How would you explain the developer's job for creating resilience and web applications to a fourth grader.
1: Ah, oh, that's a great one. Uh, so, web applications are these things that have to be running all the time, right? You go to a you go to a website like Google.com, and the website's always there to greet you, um, and when you when when the programmer does something wrong or when the system fails in some way, um, Google might not be available to you to use for that time that it's down, right? So you want to prevent that as much as you can. And the way you do that is by kind of exploring the different ways that those systems can fail and trying to uh, do your best to to stop that from happening.
0: Cool. that's That's awesome. Because that's going to be the basis of a lot of things we talk about today so thank you for that and um when did you first become interested in web development specifically with django
1: specifically i'll answer the first part without okay. the Django qualifier because i <laughs> uh i started web development if you will uh in probably eighth grade or ninth grade something like that okay awesome. uh, right around the time like everyone says, you know, I I learned web programming on my MySpace page, theming my MySpace page. Uh, I was kind of right around that era. I might have like done LiveJournal first or something like that. You know, whatever was whatever was happening at the time. But um, so it kind of goes as far back as that. But uh, with Django specifically, I think um, in one way I measure it. I think is that I started around Django 1.5. Um, so however long ago that was, um, but you know, something like seven or eight years ago at this point.
0: Cool. Awesome. What, what would you consider your first success as like a web app developer?
1: Uh, I started kind of doing more personal web development before I started doing that full time as my Mm -hmm. day job. Uh, I mean, I did programming before, but, um, I did web development to kind of build myself a website for my photography. Um, And I I think the first thing I tried, or the first thing I had for a while was a PHP application. Um, And then I didn't like that. (laughs) Uh, And so I tried uh, Spring, I think, for a a brief minute there. Uh, And then uh, I heard about this thing called Django. um, And I decided to give that a try. Uh, and hmm. it of course, was probably much more than I needed. Um, I could have could have done a lot of what I needed with kind of a static um, application of some kind, but uh, I decided to kind of use it as an opportunity to learn and do more of a kind of content management system. So,
0: hmm, excellent. And uh, if you had to start over as a web developer, what would be your first step, you think?
1: Yeah, that's a good one because I think it would be a lot different now than when I started, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time, jQuery was really the thing everywhere. Uh, And now, you know, you have your flavors of the week and and whatnot. Uh, There's a couple of people who kind of try to build this like web developer roadmap or um, kind of like learning tree Uh, And in my book, actually, I I use that same model because I think it's a great way to kind of explore learning topics. Um, So you you start at the core, which is like B-O-Web developer, and then it branches into uh, JavaScript, HTML, CSS. And then from those, it branches into, you know, pre-processors or TypeScript or things like that. And it gets ever more granular. uh, And you can kind of use that as a way to not just learn all those things at a high level and then get granular on all directions, but you can kind of take a deep dive into one if you want to come back up and explore different branches. So uh, I think that's a pretty effective model for learning Hmm. Uh, at least for some, it's certainly like a flexible model for learning. So
0: yeah, you called it a learning tree, right?
1: Yeah. I don't know if that's a real term. That's just what I call it in my head.
0: (laughs) No, it makes, it makes sense. I've seen some of those on YouTube where they just kind of wander around The learning tree saying like okay this is kind of a general path so one thing that's kind of like um been plaguing my mind actually was like when when do you know when you're ready to jump into like the view js stuff i've because i've recently or or those um uh i guess they're like virtual dom kind of like front-end framework frameworks Mm -hmm. um i've i don't i don't have like huge production loads that i'm running but i have run into some funky things where it's like okay, this page is loading every time (laughs) it's, and I know there's these things exist and like, I'm, I'm still learning my way with JavaScript and everything. So like, when does somebody run into that on their learning tree? I guess.
1: Yeah. That's, that is one of the things about self-directed learning is that it's often hard to find these real world problems until you build a real thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, And so, I think as you start to pick up areas of interest, you want to try to find a real project. Um, it may not even it may not be something you release or put out there or ever, right? But it's an opportunity to find out. Like, oh, if I do it this way, everything loads slowly, or if I do it this way, it causes a repaint every half a second or something. You know? Yeah. Um, so. Finding a lot of people do like clones of other websites, right? Clones of products, so they build an Instagram clone or a Facebook clone or something like that. And you know, they seem cliche, maybe, but I think it's because it is really a good way to learn, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think uh, starting starting around that area and that way of approaching things would be would be nice.
0: Cool. Awesome. And uh, why do you think that people love your new book or your book, The Practices of the Python Pro? Uh,
1: I don't know if anyone loves it. I don't know if I've seen the <laughs> word love. I hope someone does. Uh, <laughs> but I, the, I guess the positive feedback that I've heard is uh, that my writing is accessible, which I mm. I really like because I, I think I strived specifically for that uh, awesome. as I was writing. Um, because the the audience is not really intermediate and it's not necessarily um brand new people but uh somewhere in that pretty early phase and uh so the goal is not just to kind of force information into your into your brain but to teach you a little bit of how to think for yourself about these things so um, Mm. i try to be very it it gets as a result it can seem kind of hand wavy occasionally right um because it's hard to it's hard to say, go learn more about this uh, without concrete examples sometimes. But, uh, you know, I try to balance concrete examples and exercises with um, the more, I guess, theoretical or philosophical stuff too. Mm -hmm.
0: Cool. Uh, From like a 30,000 foot view, is there some way to kind of summarize maybe some of the big nuggets uh, regarding like the difference between uh, like a Python pro or, you know, just a dabbler or... Or someone that's maybe you know not achieved or ascended to that height.
1: Yeah, I, it's a double-edged sword because the um, I think pro calling yourself a pro is often used as like a gatekeeping mechanism um, mm. in the industry, and I certainly don't mean that. Uh, really, it's intended to convey like here are some things people learn in the industry and not necessarily in school or just by reading or something like that. Um, mm. Existing resources, I suppose um, so it's it's meant to um, it's meant to say here are some things that I've picked up and that I've noticed other people doing uh, along the way, and so trying to disseminate that information to people a little earlier uh, like this is stuff I would have liked to have a couple of years ago right
0: mm-hmm.
1: so um, I, I, between a dabbler and a pro it's it's really. I mean, you could say if you get paid money to do it, you're a pro like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the basic definition, right? But um, really just uh, if you start thinking about these things in this way, and, and having an eye toward design and performance and testing and all that stuff. Um, that's like the, the pro mindset, if you will. Mm, no excellent air quotes but. yeah
0: <laughs> there's some air quotes going on here yeah. so uh just to reiterate there's there's like uh principles of software engineering like how do you how do you uh structure your app and then maybe like testing going along with it and then uh maybe some smart smart ways to kind of start small and scale up or um is there like people skills in there too or is it strictly like hardcore? Uh, code related like how to how to do your
1: craft well that's an interesting question actually uh i was about to say reactionarily that there's not a lot of people skill stuff in there but the whole point of the book is really to write code that you can better collaborate with other people on Mm, right so that is that is like the driver in the end Uh, Yeah, it's it's meant to help you you know if you write code that Um, in the heat of the moment uh, is just whatever you could throw together. Uh, You're not going to understand it later as the writer. uh, And certainly someone who's never seen it before or has no context for what it's meant to do uh, is going to have trouble too. So um, the goal is to do all of this software design and and thinking about uh, readability and abstraction and all that stuff to help anyone kind of jumping in out of nowhere be able Mm. to at least do some archaeology right (laughs) and figure out what's going on
0: yeah heck yeah what would you uh just all things considered because i'm sure you mentioned different tools in there what are what would be like if you had to start over tomorrow what would be like the first tool that you would seek out would it be some sort of like source control tool or like an ide or maybe something else that i'm not even thinking of right now
1: are you asking like, if I didn't know what was out there, what I would look for or like specific tools that I know of?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess like specific tools that you know of right now, kind of like with all that you know right now, if you did have to start over, like what would you immediately go after and grab? Like, would it be your MacBook Pro or like a Linux operating system? Or I don't want to yeah. pollute the, uh, the, the answer, you know, like maybe sure. there's something else you have in your mind. <laughs>
1: um. That's, that's a good question. I, I think I'm pretty well into Linux side of things, for example, or at least Unix stuff. I, like I develop on a Mac uh, myself. Uh, I haven't tried like the windows, Linux subsystem or anything like that, but I've heard it's pretty good too. Um, mm. uh, so as long as I have something like that, that I am familiar with, uh, I'd be happy. And then, uh, sort of for Python development or even I guess JavaScript development. Uh, A strong kind of idiomatic testing framework is awesome. Uh, PyTest is what I use for pretty much everything these days on the Python side, it's awesome. Um, And then um, potentially like type checking, um, whether it's MyPy on Python or TypeScript. I haven't done a lot of TypeScript. I don't, I haven't, that's another layer of complexity in the whole front-end development but um uh, you know uh, if you plan to build a project of sufficient size i think type checking can um provide you some some safety so um, Mm. things like that are helpful and then uh i don't know linting is is fine um especially if you start collaborating with others in need, you just want like a consistent format for everything. I think that's the value it provides more so than, you know, having this kind of cult attitude of like, you know, you need a new line here. Um, I think it just kind of takes away the burden of formatting your code. So that part is helpful. Yeah. There's like black on the Python side and then there's uh, prettier or ESLint or something like that on JavaScript. So Mm -hmm. that, that set of tools is kind of what I, Tend to get up and running early on in a project
0: cool, yeah, uh, regarding black, I love the uh the just well at first I didn't like it, but now I really love it because it's just kind of like, okay, whatever it does, like I'm happy with
1: yeah you, there's this initial like questioning of decisions that were made, but that's the whole point is that you're trying to you're trying to just relieve yourself of of worry. Uh, yeah. So as soon as you get over that hump, it's fine. Uh, we have a number of like shared packages that other teams install in their apps, uh, and we use Black on all of those. And I'm hoping to eventually get Black sort of into the runtime applications too.
0: Mm. Uh, cool. Are you a fan of uh, Cookie Cutter at all, or or any of the Cookie Cutter?
1: Yeah, actually, I, I just got a chance to use Cookie Cutter for a real thing uh, only. Uh, maybe a couple months ago, um, okay. We kind of developed after after having so many of these shared packages that I mentioned. We kind of developed a consistent process uh, and had you know a specific setup.cfg file that we liked and all this stuff um, set up Sphinx docs the way we liked it and all that. So uh, we wrapped all of that up into a cookie cutter project and made that available. I don't know if anyone's using it yet, but it's there. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Heck yeah. Cause I know one of the the things that you had mentioned in the pre-interview, like if you had to start over tomorrow and try and become profitable in the next six months, one of the, or kind of the algorithm that you had mentioned was kind of like come up with a system, make it repeatable and then kind of expand on it from there. So maybe cookie cutter, I just thought of this like a second ago, but maybe cookie cutter is kind of part of that, that uh, uh, process, I guess, like you you build this thing that, could be repeatable if you make a nice little cookie cutter. So
1: yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, I think you can only abstract so much into libraries that you can install into your projects. You're still left with that kind of skeleton and structure of the project that you need. And especially if you're doing like client work often or something like that, mm-hmm. being able to kind of rubber stamp at least the beginnings of all those applications if they're all looking kind of the same is pretty valuable.
0: Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad we went on that little tour of kind of uh, tools that I, that you'd want to have at your disposal kind of at the beginning. These are things I wish I knew at the beginning. Like it took me forever to figure out like virtual environments and just like Git, like the, simp- the simple Git commands. And man, yeah. I just, it's amazing how, uh, how challenging self-education can be. But um, I mean, stuff like this is how you cure that type of ignorance, having these conversations.
1: <laughs> Yeah exactly.
0: <laughs> that's awesome man. Um what what is something that you think somebody could do that solves like 80% of the challenge of becoming a Python pro? Kind of that Pareto.
1: Yeah, that's a good question too. What's the word you just said? What's the word you use? The,
0: the Pareto uh principle, like the like Oh, oh yeah yeah. yeah. I think it's like, tw- or, or 80% of the results come from 20% of the effort or yeah, so that's right. I might have
1: bastardized that a little bit, but yeah, no, I the, was thinking like lowercase P and I was like trying to parse the word. <laughs> <laughs> that's all good. Um, yeah. Something that can get you sort of launched um, right away. That's mm-hmm. a good question. I mean, I would say there's probably a couple other books out there too that I would recommend in this area, um, even before like my book, for example. Um, so there's Fluent Python, which is is really popular. It teaches you all the, um, not so much like the principles of programming per se, but like how to, how to write Python as Python was sort of intended to be written in a sense, uh, idiomatic Python. Um, okay. And again, probably less about PEP8 and code formatting and stuff like that. And more so, uh, here are the tools Python provides, right? Mm. Um, And here's how to use them in the right situations. So uh, I think that would give you kind of a strong foundation for uh, the language. Because I think with any language, kind of the big thing that can get you up and running quickly is understanding its nuances compared to some other language. Uh, There's plenty of libraries that I've come across that were generated from Java bindings or something, right? And you can tell that it's a a Java project, even though it's Python. Yeah. Um, Because it just doesn't all feel the same and it might have a kind of strange way of doing things sometimes. So um, yeah, just learning kind of the ins and outs of the language and the data types. And, um, you know, Python has this principle of, uh least surprise that it tries to follow and it also tries to have one right way of doing things generally um it doesn't it's not perfect right but um learning what those are i think is is something that can get you from zero to 60 kind of quickly Mm,
0: yeah i love where you went with that just focus on the fundamentals i uh Whenever I forget about that, I love being reminded of that. Like, (laughs) like you can never do that too much. That's like a Michael Jordan thing. The guy was just an animal with the fundamentals. Yeah. So (laughs) cool, man. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, if I, if I could just kind of like borrow from that question and uh, but point it towards like the web developer space, what is something that somebody could do that solves like 80% of the challenge of being like a, uh, like a profitable web developer, like skills that pay bills type thing.
1: Yeah, that's a good one too. Uh, you know, extending sort of the answer that I gave to the previous one too, in that space, I think understanding kind of the reactive model in general, uh, is pretty powerful these days because, uh, everything is kind of moving toward view and react and, uh, you know, Angular still has some space there, it, of course, it's still huge, but um, oh. be- becoming less popular. Um, but then they're building the web component standard. Uh, and it all follows, you know, roughly the same approach. You know, each one has its own syntax and things like that. But at the end of the day, they all have this idea of kind of a component with a life cycle and uh, it communicates by changes of its properties and emitting events and things. So I think really kind of internalizing all of that um, then helps you sort of regardless of what project you're jumping into kind of be productive more quickly. Hmm. Um, and then, I don't know, the the thing with JavaScript is that it has so many trajectories and they all change so quickly compared to a lot of other languages. Um, so the, I would say understanding bundling and code splitting and things like that are important to, um, but then kind of have to choose which one you're going to use. And they are all very different uh, on that side of things. So. Um,
0: are you talking about like Webpack versus yeah. like, okay, I've actually, that has always scrambled my brain every time I was like, I'm going to learn this. So what is like a resource that you could point us to or, cause I think the other one is like Gulp. Is that what I understand? Or
1: Gulp is another one. Uh, okay. There's a few other sort of, I don't know. Webpack has like the lion's share of the, of the market. I would say okay. um, we use roll up for some things and that one's pretty nice. Uh, there's also one called parcel, I think. Um, and there's maybe even a few others. Some try to be super simple, but then you can only use them for super simple projects in some cases, because they don't do enough things. Um, so then they try to be more flexible, but then you have to configure everything and it's, you know, there's a trade-off there. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, Webpack, like I said, is kind of the the big one. Um, they do have pretty extensive documentation, so that's an okay place to start. I don't know of anything great that's just like become a Webpack expert. Uh, <laughs> just bang your head up against the wall. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: It, it probably helps to have some other people that are experienced. Like if you're not, like, I'm I'm pretty much, there's one other person in my shop. Uh, but, I mean, even that is, it's hard to kind of cross paths sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's kind of what, like, people that work on big teams and stuff, I'm always kind of envious. Like, man, you've got, you know, awesome, awesome people you can borrow their brains from and stuff. Like, that's probably a huge, like, that's a huge resource right there.
1: Yeah. Um, and a lot of this is kind of, like, almost a guild type feel right or like an apprentice kind of thing it's just like everyone who wants to learn these things kind of just goes and sees what other people did Um, there's no there's not as much sort of canonical resource or like source of truth Um, there's just a billion people on the internet who all have their own way of doing things (laughs) and you kind of like collect the pieces you like or that work for you and you end up with some entirely new thing Um,
0: it it takes uh like the whole like where part of software takes on like a whole new meaning it is like some medieval shit (laughs) 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 oh that's hilarious um what did you what would you say is like overly complicated that newcomers should stay away from uh on their quest to becoming a professional You can take this two different directions professional python professional web developer i'm just curious like what are some booby traps i need to kind of be aware of and kind of steer clear of
1: i think it is easy to get consumed in that kind of code formatting and perfect looking code uh idea that i mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. um which is another reason i kind of like uh black for instance just like doing it for you because then you just end up with what you end up with. And then you can focus on actually solving the problems and um, making things the right level of abstraction and uh, separating different stuff into different functions the right way and all that. So Mm -hmm. um, I I think it's easy. It's also something really tangible that you can do if you're, you know, just starting out, it's like, I can, I can reformat this code to look better. Um, so that's that's fine, and certainly it's okay to do that to kind of get familiar with things, um, but it can certainly become kind of a, a rabbit hole or a bike shed uh, pretty quick.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just that tooling, that tooling in general, like decking out your IDE and stuff. Just just pick something and go with it. Quit right. messing around with it.
1: Yeah. I, I actually like use Vim for most of my development just because okay. I'm like, I don't need much. I just need to be able to like type text. Um, yeah, and I usually jump to an IDE only if I find myself needing to kind of have a bunch of files open at once or, you know, switching contexts really frequently. So mm-hmm. uh, I get that for sure.
0: Yeah. When, it, so with Vim, um, I, I got a little curious about this cause there's a bunch of, uh, really cool hotkeys. Like if you can, if you can manage to to learn them, I guess it really helps with productivity. And um, there's like a video game online that's like Vim yeah. questing. Have you have you tried that out at all?
1: I have. I think it's like VimAdventures.com. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's super fun. I, I would rec- I would super recommend that actually to anyone okay. who just wants to like learn how to get around Vim. Um, Vim I like because it kind of maps most anything you'd want to do to. Kind of the same set of steps each time, like you you have an action and a way of specifying like the range of text that you want to change, and then that's kind of the pattern you follow for most stuff. Um, I haven't used Emacs much. Uh, I don't know if it kind of follows a similar model or not. Um, but uh, I those are the those are the only two I've used that are kind of that uh, model, but I think there's a lot of others out there too. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. That's kind of getting back to that whole come up with the system and make it repeatable type thing. It's, that's, it's becoming like very apparent that you, you kind of apply that in all these different departments, like everything from the editor that you write in and, uh, the, I guess the, the, just the, the methods of kind of like how you create, like with the cookie cutter thing. So yeah. That's really solid advice. I, I really like that.
1: Yeah. I also make really uh, extensive use of like shell aliases to okay. reduce like my typing and brain power. Um, yeah. I think that's a great way once you get super comfortable with your setup, if you find yourself like usually what I do is just like list out my entire command history and I'm like, well, oh, I use, I've used this like 27 times in the past, uh, maybe i should come up with an alias for that uh especially if it's like a long command you know 30 60 characters something like that if you mm-hmm. can abstract some of that into just a two or three letter command uh and only remember what you ha- what argument you have to give it that's uh that can save a lot of time it feels silly like i oh i shaved point 2 seconds off of my running this command that i run once a week um but it, it, I don't know over the long term, it, it kind of helps i'm I'm just reminded of this xkcd comic uh, It's like this table that tells you if if a task takes this long and you optimize it by this much, is it worth optimizing it? <laughs> um, it's one of the earlier ones I don't remember the the title of it, but check mm. that out too.
0: yeah, absolutely, excellent, man. Oh. Uh, One of your uh, core principles is to share what you know, holding strong opinions weekly. This is like a paraphrase from what I understood. Uh, Another one is to give others what you have and be receptive to what they give back. And so I was curious while operating under those principles, what edge do you believe that gives you
1: in business? Very good question. I do uh, to, to clarify or not to, not to even clarify, I think you're exactly right in your interpretation of what I said. Okay. Uh, I think the, I think the idea of being receptive, like giving people what you know and being receptive to what they may have to give you is to me kind of the, the better voicing of what hold strong opinions weekly means because it, I don't know. So there's, there's kind of a lot of connotation built up around holding opinions and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think what it is trying to say is like, say your piece and like, share what you know, share, be open with your opinions and knowledge. um, But then also make sure others opinions and knowledge and sharing are uh, equally kind of brought onto the floor. Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So anyway, um, I, I think, in that light, it kind of helps in business because um, these conversations are all that, right? Like they're all kind of pull and push, give and get, um, trying to reach a middle ground, trying to reach a solution together. Um, And that can really only happen if you, if you kind of follow that approach. Mm
0: -hmm. Because as
1: soon as you kind of hold one opinion, it could be about anything. uh, It can kind of like sour the entire process, right? Um, Yeah like a sticking point. So hmm. um, yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah. The one, I guess, cause I've experienced this where I, I like, I really resonated with what you were saying there. Uh, and so I, I'd like to think I practice the same thing. Uh, but sometimes I've run across this in my life where some people just, they are so religious about like the technology they use or the, the beliefs that they have, And so when you're in a collaborative environment, it's, it's got to be like the most, like, I want to work with you, but you're so, you know what I mean? So I was just wondering if you had any insight on like those tricky situations, like, do you maintain that those principles, even when, you know, you're working with, with somebody that's basically like not open-minded at all to, I don't, yeah. Do you have any insight on that? Uh, The impossible question
1: go (laughs) yeah it's it's it is like a leadership and communication question right it's a very like interview question (laughs) because it it is hard um i think though that if you do kind of abandon those principles in the heat of that it actually gets worse right because if there's already one person unwilling to budge and you add another person unwilling to budge it's like what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object right um So the way to kind of approach that is to make sure that you all agree at least on what the problem is, Mm -hmm. right? If you can all agree on the problem, you stand a chance. If you find out that you both thought the problem was two different things, uh, then you at least kind of talk that out and realize you're talking past each other. And then uh, if you can reach kind of a, compromise and say oh right this is this is the thing we're actually trying to fix um then that gives you a little bit of an open door right because then you can say well if this is what we're trying to fix these things that i'm trying to express or that i'm trying to suggest uh may also help us address that because um you know x y reasons but um yeah, yeah i think making sure you're all agree like where you have to end up is the only way you can hope to kind of like choose a path together
0: yeah man that that is powerful because it kind of I guess what kind of is the undertone with that whole thing is maybe maybe one person is is really maybe taking things personal like it's like Mm -hmm. it's like a personal thingy that they're clinging on to and then the person that's open-minded is maybe kind of like you know, whatever, whatever the solution we need to come up with, we'll go for. So I love how you kind of you just deflect it. Like, okay, let, let's, let's talk about something that's not pointing fingers at you or me. Let's talk about this thing. Yep. <laughs> I love it. That's some ninja stuff right there.
1: Well, and what you said too, about like deflecting it from people uh, is important too, because it's easy uh, in the heat of an argument or a disagreement to, um, to say like, well, you're doing this, or you did this, and I I didn't like how you did this. Um, if you instead just say how you feel or how you think, uh, and yet like what this other, you know, disembodied thing is that you're trying to talk about, um, that helps people not feel so defensive. Because um, if you're just saying I I like the way this tool solves the problem, that's hard to kind of fight back against, right? Yeah. I can't say, no, you don't like <laughs> that. Um, <'cause> yeah. <laughs> it's just like a, a factual statement about yourself or like a opinion, then you can't really, um, can't really kind of take those as personally. So uh, I like that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's cool, man. Um, when it comes to building Django powered web apps, what would be a, a checklist that somebody could kind of use, maybe some 30,000 foot view checklist to make sure that they're building something that's solid and repeatable or that that has repeatable processes and maybe even introducing automation with it. Like if they're, if they're proceeding with that end in mind, what is some like checklist or or like top three things you'd like to see on a checklist to make that happen?
1: Yeah. Uh, one is, one is a bit broad. Um, I think continuous integration just as a whole topic is super helpful uh, in that regard, right? Uh, So continuous integration is this idea that you, maybe on each pull request or each commit or something like that, you uh, kick off some job that uh, runs your tests, it runs whatever checks you want it to, um, and all in an automated fashion. Uh, So I think that's kind of a big... A big win if you can if you can do that i use travis ci for a lot of my personal projects it's pretty kind of i, I try to avoid the word easy uh it's it's as good as some others at uh getting you up and running uh, and i think uh i mean we use jenkins for most things at work and jenkins is all right it's free which is got its ups and downs but um, you know, if you can find a tool that will uh, just kind of let you let you run those checks for you each time, that's pretty powerful. GitHub Actions is a new thing. To uh, I know Jeff Triplett, who's a big Django guy, uh, is also a really big GitHub Actions guy. Uh, he has, I think, he has some like open open ones that he uh, has shared. But um, then, in terms of other repeatable process stuff. Um, I guess boiling down your deployment process to uh, an automated process is also good. Uh, I know I spent a good several months, maybe a year on a website at some point where, you know, I just ran the deployment step-by-step typing each command every time. Uh, And I'm sure that a handful of those times I either missed something or did it wrong or mistyped something. And, uh, You know, if I was fortunate enough to notice, I fixed it right then, Um, but occasionally you just miss stuff, right? That's that's what human error is all about. Uh, So the more you can kind of reduce that opportunity for human error uh, and also kind of make things faster because you don't have to remember all the commands and type all the commands each time, Uh, that really is kind of a productivity boost and a resiliency boost, right? and then testing really is kind of like you don't necessarily think about testing as repeatable super often, but if you can get a solid test uh suite around your application every time you make a change, you just run the test suite, and you know if you're sufficiently testing things, uh, it can tell you if something broke um, or that everything's fine, right so I like the uh I like the idea of. I don't necessarily do test-driven development all the time, but I do try to have good test coverage generally. Um, it also helps you uh, design things better because you kind of start to think about how you can break things. Uh, so even as you're building it, you're like, oh, well, I see that if I do it this way, maybe this is going to go wrong. Um, so getting into that mindset is, is helpful in more ways than one.
0: Awesome. So with the automated deployments piece, are you talking about like Ansible and Terraform or?
1: It could like, be if, you, if okay. you sort of need that level of uh, complexity, right? Because um, they handle, they can handle a lot of uh, infrastructure changes. So if you have you know a database and a cache and uh, maybe you need to put your assets, your, your static assets, into a CDN or something like that, um, you can start to automate all of that, which is really cool. Um, I use this thing called Zappa for some of my personal projects. It turns your Django app or any actually any WSGI app I think uh into a lambda function on AWS. Okay. Uh, it sets up all of the API gateway stuff for you and uh you can you can think point it at S3 buckets for your for your uh CSS and JavaScript files so um that ends up becoming kind of a push button thing too. Um,
0: okay. Zappa. So,
1: yeah, like uh, like Frank Zappa. Um, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I did a talk about that at DjangoCon like two years ago, I think. Um, it's a pretty, pretty fun tool. But yeah, just whatever your deployment process is, right? Um, even if you just automate kind of the commands you would run, uh, that's a huge first step and then if you want to build more resiliency by kind of managing your infrastructure as code, uh, that is I think a real industry term, infrastructure as code. Yeah, um, It's like this idea that you, everything is a configuration file, right? Uh, and so you can track changes to it and you can, uh, you can repeat steps because it's all, it's all uh, kind of structured data. Rather than you clicking buttons in AWS, which is bound to get you into trouble because <laughs> AWS is wild.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, that's another one that I, I always at least once a year uh, get the courage to go a little deeper down that rabbit trail, but then at one point I'm just like, I gotta get some shit done. Like I'm, and so yeah, that's where it helps to really have a team. And uh, Heroku has been a crutch that I lean on. I know it's, I know there's like you know, upper levels of things that I'm just not reaching by going that route, but it's so stinking easy to just, I mean, you can even push your Docker files up there now too, if you're, but yeah, there's, man, getting back to what you were saying about the whole, like, you know, millions of people like learning and picking the things that they, it just, it is the perfect metaphor for this insane profession. Like there's, yeah, Oh man, I'm in this space
1: that we're kind of talking about, like Kubernetes is another thing in that area, right? Um, Okay. uh, It's like, it's like, now you've, now you've finally understood Docker. What if you could deploy your containers into this massive cluster and manage all of that? Um, So it's like a, an order of magnitude mind expansion. (laughs) Um, And I found that that community is often the same way. It's like, people are just figuring out how to do stuff and then they publish what they did and you take what snippets of that seem to be like the thing you want. Crazy. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, It's really tribal. I never, I never thought about it like that. I knew, I knew that there was some kind of religious things going on, but yeah, I, I guess I just, I'm going to walk away from this interview just with that on my mind. Uh, It, it (laughs) makes it's humans are really tribal. So it kind of makes sense that, that's how that's how this thing would kind of go but man just even from like building your own audience for example like these are the things you would kind of the levers you would pull you know is kind of what that reminds me of but all right yeah. well i, I probably <laughs> that's cool man i i love going down these these little uh like thought thought trails here but um yeah. what what uh tools and learning resources do you recommend for someone that's uh, seeding a Django powered web app with millions of rows of data.
1: Oh gosh. Um,
0: is it like ETL stuff or is there like celery?
1: Yeah, I guess, I, you know, this is, this is an area I don't have a ton of experience in actually. Like I haven't done Django uh, database, ORM type stuff and all that uh, at scale. We have kind of a, a microservice oriented architecture uh at Ithaca so uh, we're often using Django kind of as a glue of of different services Um, okay we use the ORM for kind of smaller back office things um but uh yeah in kind of the like you I think you hit on uh hit it right on the head with ETL um and Celery and kind of like I guess the model I would think about from a resiliency standpoint is uh, if you sort of have this very active user group, user audience uh, for your site, if there are things that are expensive to do, like in response to a user's action, try to offload that into a separate process, right? Um, if you don't want to have something that takes that long uh, kind of in the request flow. Um, so it's better instead to kind of, you know indicate to the user like, "Hey, we got your request, we're working on it uh and then put that into yeah celery or some kind of worker queue and um have that happen out of band and then you know tell them to check back later and then <laughs> indicate the risk, the um the status of the thing right so um that's that that is what we do for for a number of our processes um I think that's that helps because if you if each request takes, you know, 30 seconds, um, your, your server is going to get busy really fast.
0: Uh, Nobody's going to so, want to play with your web app anymore.
1: Yeah, this is true too. Um, I think there's like people's attention span for web pages is like one and a half seconds or something totally oh, wow. like people just lose interest so fast these days. Um, wow. Yeah, I don't know.
0: There's no tolerance for subpar uh, performance here, folks.
1: Right. Everyone wants like the, they want like the native app experience. Right. Um, Yeah. But with the web, most of the code is not at their computer yet. Um, So you have to both get it to their computer and then use it uh, to provide them an experience in that same amount of time. So it's Hmm. challenging.
0: Yeah, that it it is challenging. I, uh, this I kind of warned you before the show that I might have some like, yeah, I have a friend that was, uh, but th- yeah, like, like full transparency here. Like I may, there is a chance, maybe I'm trying to do things with Django that just shouldn't be done, <laughs> but we, we deal it, I I work in oil and gas. And so we have a lot of, um, like, like the, the job of a petroleum engineer is to deploy capital efficiently, probably like many engineers you're, you're making sure that when you spend money, there's good return on investment. And so, with the accounting system, it can just be so granular with how you track the expenses and every well is like a little business in itself. And so there's like all these levels of aggregation, like groups of wells and uh, you know, like user defined groups of wells and stuff. And so just managing all of that, like uh, in a database I've, I've been kind of like, I've been going between like web development, data engineer, like I don't even know what I am anymore. DevOps, like it's, it's the full uh i don't know it's it's challenging man i i love it because it's challenging but yeah do you have any do you have any uh advice for someone who's kind of like wearing the devops hat wearing the the uh web development hat uh data engineering hat um uh, firefighter hat like
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very good question, and it's I I think it's a challenge that no one has necessarily solved, right? Like this is this is, these are the kinds of problems you reach where they really are just inherently challenging things, right? Yeah. Uh, like learning Webpack is challenging because Webpack is uh, opaque, <laughs> but uh, solving these problems is hard because these problems are hard. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a few things that come to mind, um, sort of things I don't have deep experience with, right? But there's these ideas of like eventual consistency. So if you don't need everything to be exactly right, right away, um, that's a way to offload some of that because then, um, you know, you just sort of trust the system to to catch up. Uh, Obviously if you're doing more um, things that need to be like an audit trail kind of thing, um, that's, that's probably not a good model because, You need it to be right when you check it so yeah um, there's also you know different kinds of databases uh, you know graph databases and and different ways of thinking about storing data Um, it's like NoSQL databases and things like that that you know if the if the flexibility of the data is more valuable to you than the um sort of referential integrity and all that stuff, um, then there's trade-offs you can make there. Um, there's also, you know, sharding and things like that. So you could um, you know, kind of put each well into its own database and, you know, scope the scope the queries to that database um, so that it's more efficient to draw from. Um, obviously indexes are a I shouldn't say obviously, but I also try not to say easy, right? Um, indexes on databases are a way to, um, you know, speed up the queries that are most important for you. Um, so those are, that's like the toolkit, right? Um, and you kind of have to case by case figure out which ones you need to pull out. Um, there's like this adage about uh, this guy lost in the desert, his truck breaks down and uh, he finally gets someone to come out and, and fix it and he just like hits one part with a wrench and he's like that will and, and his car starts he's like that'll be five hundred dollars he's like how how is this so expensive you just hit it with a wrench he's like yeah but i knew where to hit it
0: that's amazing
1: <laughs> right <laughs> so uh it's kind of like that right you you learn all these things over time um and then the the real value is like knowing when to use any particular one of them
0: mm. Yeah. So, so just keep, keep the hope, keep the faith, keep plugging away at it. You'll develop this intuition. I'll make sure and tell my friend that's, that was what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Awesome, man. Thank you. Um, What are some learning resources that you recommend for getting up to speed with automated deployments for Django powered web apps? And you might've already kind of hit this with like the circle CI you had mentioned. Oh no wait. Automated deployments would be, more of like a like a ansible
1: type thing but
0: yeah yeah deal with that question however you'd like
1: yeah uh i think generally generally getting an understanding of continuous uh, integration is super helpful i would not try to use jenkins documentation for that because okay i don't like to throw shade very often but like Jenkins documentation is potentially some of the hardest to read that I've ever, ever encountered on any project. Um, good to know. <laughs> Travis CI docs are like pretty thorough, but a lot of them are about you know how to use Travis CI and not necessarily about continuous integration. Um, there might be some books, some good books on continuous integration. Um, I'm not really sure. Uh, there is a book called Release It that is on my radar um, to read, but I have not yet. Uh, and it, I think it combines a bit of maybe continuous integration ideas and also resiliency approaches. Um, so, uh, from a broad standpoint, those are good resources. Um, and then for Django specifically, like I would check out Zappa and see if you know if you just have small projects, that might be a cool thing. Uh, especially if you're already on AWS might even have actually supplier like a, like a integration with Google cloud platform and others. Now okay. I'm not really sure. Um, I just used AWS cause that's what I knew at the time. Um, and then I'm trying to think what other parts of, of the process I don't know. I guess a, 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 sometimes the problem, right, is with with all this tribal knowledge that we're talking about and the the kind of spread around the internet, is that there isn't sometimes a central resource for some particular topic. Um, which is kind of kind of what I tried to do with the book too, because like a lot of what I mentioned really is out there somewhere, um, but it just wasn't really all in one place and it wasn't kind of in a good linear order that you could follow. So, mm-hmm. um, that's one reason I kind of identified some of the things I did as belonging in this book. So, um, mm-hmm. I think I can mostly only speak in those kind of broad topics. So continuous integration, automated deployment, uh, repeatability.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and maybe that's like another, uh, benefit or why, like the, the good feedback that you're getting on the book is because it's kind of like a concentrated, like, okay, we're going to start here and we're going to end here and take you on a little tour of some things and, and it'll be uh, kind of like more trenchant, like war story uh, based, less academic type thing. Or mm. Yeah, that's, that's cool, man. Um, let's see here. So if you had to pick a new book idea to begin writing tomorrow, what do you think it could be?
1: Uh, I do have a semblance of an idea um, I don't know if it's a whole book or maybe like a, a learning series or something but um, for Python and I guess this applies to JavaScript too but uh, I've most recently been kind of experiencing it with Python there's quite a few aspects to you know managing a package right say you say you release an open source package um, there's a ton of There's a ton of steps in that life cycle, especially if you want it to be robust and you want people to be able to contribute back and understand the the code um, aside from just the problem that it solves. Um, And so there's there's a lot of tools that are helpful there. Like I mentioned, PyTest, uh, there's also Tox, which is an amazing tool for kind of automating, testing against your packaged code um, and also just generally automating any any sort of task uh related to, to package management um and getting the testing and formatting and all that stuff. Um I, I think that feels like it could be a book, right? Like like the pack the Python package lifecycle um in a in a nutshell, right? So um that's an idea I've been kind of tossing around. Um and the, I think all of that kind of has parallels in JavaScript, right? Or any, any language that has some sort of packaging system. And I guess most do right? like, uh, rusts and, uh, Java and most anything. Um, even Perl, I guess has like CPAN, right?
0: <laughs> so I'm not a huge, uh, uh, I haven't really branched out much from the JavaScript, um, Python ecosystem. I mm-hmm. cut my teeth in the, uh, uh, SQL VBA space automating, uh, you know, the Microsoft Excel stuff and then started hitting walls and, and needed to nerd out in different areas. And everything has been like a need to nerd basis for me. So it's not a, (laughs) (laughs) so, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I definitely feel your, what you're talking about when it comes to just packaging, like that was, I mean, I look back on it now and it's, it's not like, too insane. And I'm not even trying to be like, I know it all. I'm just like, there, like I had to sit down and just deal with it. I think it started with click pythons, the, the click package, because yep. one, one of the best practices that click recommends is that you install the package locally. That way you get this functionality of, uh, you can, you can call it a little easier, mm. uh, when in, in click. So then I started going down that rabbit trail of like the setup.py and, um, but yeah, like collaborating with other people on open source, like let's say that you had that book ready and people knew how to, maybe they'd be more empowered to contribute to open source cause they, they just wouldn't have that barrier anymore. So I, I see think that is
1: like the real, one of the real barriers uh, to contributions is like just people worrying they might do it wrong or might screw it up or don't fully understand like the, the breadth of what they need to do to make the fix or something.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so getting, getting over that hump is like, uh, kind of the gateway to everything else.
0: Cool. Yeah. Maybe like a, like a learning series, like you said, and then depending on how receptive people are, uh, maybe it would turn into a book type thing. Yeah. So cool, man. Yeah. Um, so regarding leadership, I was curious, what are some characteristics that you admire in a strong leader? And I'm going to open up my door for my dog while you're answering that.
1: Sure. (laughs) Um, I try, like to me, leadership is about not, it's it's not about um, kind of being out in front and being in the lead, right? It is about helping everyone around you succeed. Mm. Um, And whether that means, um, you know, helping them be more productive, uh, helping them be more um, kind of just satisfied with how, how their days go. Um, hmm. uh, it, can mean, it can mean a lot of things, both technical and interpersonal. Um, but I think the, the ultimate goal really is just like that idea of making everyone around you better. Like if, everyone, if you can make everyone around you better than you at um, something or, or all the things, Uh, that's like the pinnacle of, of being a leader, I think. Um, and you sort of, um, share in your successes and you take the brunt of, of failure, uh, and you sort of own the failure yourself, um, because, you know, it's, it's important to lift people up and to use failure as a learning opportunity. Right. Um, so, um, I think those are the, the big facets to me. Um, Servant leadership is kind of like the the word people used for that for a long time. I think it's like going out of style or something, but uh, in the, like servant in the sense that like your job is to help others uh, do what they need to do. So yeah, uh, that's kind of my thought on that.
0: Awesome. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, I definitely, I mean, leadership, I guess you, one could say it's not easy. Just even reflecting on what you're talking about there, like, that is not my go-to place a lot of times, like in the interpersonal, you know, human friction, just moving bodies in an office space. Um, yeah, that's a really hard place to default to like, okay. Um, yeah, there's, I just reflect it's, it's not all bad, but I mean, when it happens, like that's like in you, you have like a moment between like something, this is like some seven habits thing, like between the moment of something happens and your reaction is like this little space where you get to choose yeah. and uh, you don't, you know, some of the some choices are more critical than others. Like, like you have this, you know, moment to shine that would, you know, your boss would think like, Oh, this guy's meant for the job or this guy's not meant for the job. Uh, just and it, it's like five minutes out of like a 40 hour week. But if you don't perform right there, you're just not the person for the job. You know, like it's, it's crazy how, important these things are and i just listening to you and reflecting on it like i wish i defaulted to what you talked about more i guess is what i'm trying to <laughs> me too
1: you. i mean it, it like it it doesn't get easier i don't think uh, yeah. as you try to practice this stuff mostly you kind of uncover how bad you are at it like you realize <laughs> yeah. how bad you are at it um yeah. and it is easy to to default to um the wrong thing like you said well wrong thing like it's easy to default to the less productive thing i suppose yeah Um, and i think it also it really can depend on your workplace right um i think if you don't experience that kind of leadership from someone yourself Mm -hmm. um, it can be hard to do it too because if you if you make a mistake and the response is kind of like oh you screwed up why'd you do that um the next time that happens, you're probably going to be less inclined to say, Oh, I made a mistake. Yeah. Um, when that really is kind of the right thing to do. Uh, so fortunate, like I'm fortunate at Ithaca to be in a place like we do blameless postmortems about all of our outages and things like that. So the goal is really like, yeah, something bad happened. It, it no one, no one meant to do that, of course. Um, so, you know, we have to examine the ways that we arrived there and try and just not let those happen again Uh, whether it's by you know fixing a system uh its architecture or um you know making our automation more robust in some way Um, so every failure is kind of a learning opportunity i think if you can find a workplace like that uh that's that's sort of the ultimate place to practice those uh i'll say servant leadership again yeah yeah let's
0: keep it alive
1: I don't know. I don't know if I want to, like, I'm not tied to it. That's just like, that's the two word phrase that I've heard put to that stuff. Yeah. Before. Um, I, am um,
0: I'm, I'm not ashamed. I'll, I'll, I'll say it. I'm a, I'm, well, I used to do a lot of Toastmasters
1: okay. and
0: um, are you familiar with that organization?
1: I, I've heard the name, but I don't really know much about what it. They.
0: Out. It's basically like a safe place for you to go practice your public speaking skills. Oh, okay. And it's like a, you know, cultish a little, like <laughs> there's like levels of leadership that just go like on and on, but you know, develop your own opinion about it. I'm not, I think it was great, uh, it was a great experience for me, but um, they, the leadership there was huge on servant leadership. Like, cause it's, if you think about it, it's basically like you're paying money to go inflict pain on yourself. Like <laughs> nobody wants to do public speaking. And so yeah. the whole thing is like nonprofit. And so in a scenario like that, the only way that the thing thrives is if it's based on the servant leadership that you're talking about. If it comes from any other place, it's, it just, it just won't happen. You won't have an organization. So there's definitely that culture that you're talking about is a huge, like make, make or break scenario for even a non, well, you work in nonprofits. So, you know, you know about uh, this whole thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome, man. So, um, I was curious on your quest to become a principal engineer, what is the biggest action that you could take today that would lead to knocking over the dominoes that basically lead to that goal or like maybe the big domino you could knock over?
1: Oh gosh. Uh, I think the way I often uh, think about it and the way we've kind of set up our um, career ladder, if you will, um, is that, each each kind of rung on that ladder is about um turning more of your experience outward um so as as sort of like a brand new engineer you're actually still like everything's coming in you're soaking in knowledge you're soaking in how to do things you're trying to get stuff to work um and then as um as you move up a little bit you start to really be just kind of that like go-to person for fixing problems and stuff like that. Um, as you become a senior, then that's really where you start to have to like help other people know what you know, or help other people have that shared experience with you. Um, and then, um, as you become yet another step, um, you kind of develop proficiency in some, area or areas uh, to the point where you're kind of like the expert in that uh, specific thing at the company and you help other people get better at it uh, across the organization. And then as a principal engineer, um, you take that to an even further extreme and kind of like manage whole projects and initiatives and things like that, uh, that move the organization forward. So um, I've been kind of exploring where those opportunities are to, to do more of that, um, kind of organization wide, uh, initiatives or, you know, not fully organization wide necessarily, but, uh, like the front end developer group or something like that. How can we, uh, take some concrete thing and really, uh, accelerate it to, to provide value. So,
0: mm. so it's kind of like identifying that place that you want to be the authority, or maybe it's like a couple of like passionate areas that you want to be the authority and then just taking the actions to um i don't want to say like demonstrate your authority but basically like you're providing like you're you're um releasing all these like sharing into the wild in those areas and that's doing that uh, on a regular basis is is kind of what's going to knock over those dominoes is what it sounds like
1: yeah. And, you know, it, it can also happen somewhat naturally. Like for me, the, the, I would say, I'm kind of that person for Python, if you will, uh, at Ithaca. Mm-hmm. And I didn't seek to be that. Uh, I, I just liked Python and I read a lot of docs about it <laughs> like and, and tried a lot of things. And so, um, as you see other people having discussions about it, if they, if they seem like they want some help or, or, um, have questions or something you first at first you kind of like jump into those and say like, Hey, I know a little about that. Maybe I can help. Um, but then eventually like people come to start asking you those questions of, of their own volition. And, um, so you, you certainly could pick like, if you know, there's something you just want to be able to, to provide for your organization on uh, go for it, but, um, it can also, you might just find one day that you're like, "Oh, I guess I, I guess I'm that person for whatever it is now." Uh, mm-hmm. The web pack, <laughs> <Unfortunately>.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, so basically, what what I'm really hearing here is uh, kind of this recurring theme of like, you don't want to be you don't want to be religious about like being the Python guy or girl because mm-hmm. for all you know, you're well suited for something else, and so just not having that you know, have, have some sort of vision maybe, but don't be so strongly m- married to it that, um, you know, that you're not open to other, other things. Cause like the Python thing, like you were saying, like you didn't plan on that. It just kind of just happened. You went there and that's what happened.
1: Yeah. And it's again, the goal, right. I said like turning everything outward. So yeah, the goal of all that is really collectively improving. Right. Yeah. Um, so you only like when we speak about authority that doesn't really mean anything about how um how much say you have or how much like sway you have um it's really all about just like how willing are you to help other people because if you know everything and you don't want to help anyone you're not gonna you're not gonna become a principal engineer right like that's not who That's not who should be in those roles. Uh, Mm. The people who are there to, um, like they've, they're there because they've simply like amassed that knowledge and experience. uh, And they've done it on like with much help from everyone else. Right. Uh, Yeah. And then they're, they're there to just kind of like reflow all of that information back up. Um, Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's, I, I'm certainly not, not there yet in my career but it's an interesting thought experiment to kind of go on is like what are those what are those attributes that you really need to embody if that's the direction you're going and so i i can really appreciate what you're sharing here um because it, it gives me it, like a little bit of like a different frame of reference like i think it's okay what i'm what i'm kind of just digging into a little more like i'm okay with now maybe being more of on the receiving end of knowledge, knowing that one day my, my turn will come where I can share a little more. And uh, cause sometimes I'm so hard on myself, like with the learning side mm-hmm. of things, it's like, ah, I need to learn all this stuff and I don't, I, you know, but it's okay to kind of be in these different stages. Just, um, just recognize like, okay, maybe you should flex that giving muscle a little more and uh you've kind of went down some learning paths here, like let's see if we can collect it and you know put it on a, a blog or make some content or something, and see if you can ha- just seek out opportunities to help people and then uh it's it's kind of like flexing these muscles to get you to the next level so i don't know maybe it's obvious you know to everybody listening here, but I'm having a light bulb moment, so
1: I don't think it is <laughs> uh, I think that's actually really insightful um and, and I would I would venture to not venture, but like I would encourage people to think about that, regardless of where they are sort of in mm-hmm. their career or experience, because uh if you've started if you started at all, you're ahead of someone else right like there's someone who hasn't started yet or is just starting, and you're you're incrementally further than they are uh, and if that's the case, like you technically strictly speaking, like you have something you could teach them right yeah. Uh, so it's important, I think, to reflect on that at various points um, and take, take, like you said, that opportunity to, to once in a while kind of like flip that energy around.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. So I don't know if you can see this, but there's a sign that says action. I can see that. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm all about. That's, like my, like, that's my core value if I had to boil it down to one word. And so I was curious for you. Who is someone you admire that is a massive action taker? It could be like your neighbor or a famous person. I'm just curious about what, what are the attributes that, that you admire that, you know, because they're such a massive action taker? You're like, yes, I like that, that part about them. It's a great
1: question. I'm I'm almost thinking of it from a point of like just by just by being the person who's taking actions like that's that's admirable because I think it's very easy to um sort of get analysis paralysis or um be find find a lot of reasons not to do something um and so the folks who are out there like just doing it every day is is awesome uh in open source uh and in python specifically like um, some of the pytest people come to mind because that's like a very active maintainership uh some of the, some of the maintainers recently left uh, there's a bit of a bit of um, uh, unfortunate circumstance going on in the project at the moment but um like anthony satilli uh he's just like contributing to open source everywhere every day uh it's it's wild um so i think they're providing a lot of value because they um they Provide the contributions, but they don't just uh, always kind of throw the code up in a pull request and that's that. Like I see people having active discussions about um, reasons for doing things and requests for comments, and it's it's really like a discussion and not just a kind of one way one way street. So I kind of admire that. Um, There's occasionally people like that in the political sphere and things like that too, right? Like they're they're not necessarily the loudest people, but they are like the people who are just consistently getting shit done. Um, And I commend people for that because um, especially in, in politics or any kind of like politics in the general sense uh, applied to any community. uh, Again, it's easy to kind of like find plenty of reasons not to do something, Um, but in the interest of kind of progress, um, the best thing to do is find a way to do something. So that's my thought
0: cool yeah thanks for sharing that and uh, another kind of uh just i i kind of had like the the grab all questions here at the end like i want the answers to them but i didn't know where to stick them so here we are here we are where do you source your high quality coffee from
1: (laughs) oh uh i usually get stuff uh kind of locally like um the closest grocery store to us is whole foods but they carry like a bunch of local local coffee so i usually try to get that um, there's, I mean, obviously right now can't really go to a coffee shop and get any coffee, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'll usually buy beans directly from, uh, some coffee shops. Um, there's, uh, so I used to live in Michigan and there's a, a coffee shop that I really liked there and I'm friends with the the guy who kind of ran it. Um, and he, you know, that coffee shop's gone now, but he's been, hopping around different places, still like roasting and stuff. So I order online from him every once in a while too. Um, so just where I can get it. Um, but the, to me, like the, the quality part also is in like brewing it. Uh, so I usually do like pour over or AeroPress or something every day. Um, there's like free coffee in the lobby of our apartment building, but it's, um, I don't know, it's like bulk Starbucks and they brew it at like just just boiling. It's like it just tastes burnt at the end. Yeah. So I I still pay money for coffee even though I don't <laughs> have to.
0: Hey, I'm I'm kind of a huge fan of the uh the French press. I don't know if there's like another word for that, but yeah, just grind up the beans and make small batches and get little grinds in my teeth. I don't care, it's
1: delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um I do French press occasionally too. We have that. Uh, I also have like the Vietnamese coffee filters, uh so we do that occasionally. Uh, okay. I'd like have to
0: look into that. More devices than
1: I probably should. <laughs> we take
0: our coffee very seriously here, folks. No, that's that's all do you roast beans too,
1: or you have, I, you have not, a- I have not uh gone full whatever that is yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people actually. There's some people at Ithaca I know who roast their own coffee. Okay. I don't think it's super hard. Um, you know, you buy the green beans if you will and then you can just like roast them on the stovetop or or there's like a machine that'll do it too but hmm. i haven't, haven't tried that yet
0: in your infinite spare time you can yeah uh, <laughs> wiggle that in there cool man um so you had mentioned something about a uh talk that you saw sandy metz do she and i researched her a little bit there's a uh pretty much like a ruby she's ruby person But I was curious, what are some examples of the earth shattering wisdom that you acquired from that, from that talk on OOP?
1: So she originally was like a small talk programmer Um, and small talk was this like early object oriented language. Um, Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm using the right words. It might not even be object oriented, but uh, it, it emphasized more like the message passing between objects rather than kind of the objects themselves okay uh, and that is sort of how ruby is to and and especially how sandy chooses to use ruby um and this idea of kind of like emphasizing the messages passed between objects which turns out to be like their their interface essentially right um is pretty powerful i think it Really changed the way that I thought about kind of the developer experience of a lot of things um, a lot of open source packages have to provide like something that feels either fun or or intuitive right um, and I think by by thinking about stuff that way uh, you arrive at at some of that in a more natural progression um, so that was that was pretty cool. Um, she also has ideas about kind of how to test uh, objects and how to encapsulate objects that I think are very interesting. Uh, she has like a ton of videos on YouTube. Seriously, any, any one that you drop yourself into, I think it'd just be, you know, huge value add. Cool. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, so even if you're not like a Ruby programmer, for example, like you, you'd you still benefit a lot.
1: Yeah, like I, I've done some Ruby. I did a little Ruby right before I jumped into Python. Um, but I would say I I know, very little Ruby at this point, uh, and I still I still really like it. She also has this book, 99 Bottles of OOP, where the entire book is just a project for printing out 99 bottles of beer on the wall. <laughs> the entire book is that, uh, and she, she it just like, she takes you from like the simplest way to do it all the way through to like this very nice, clean, robust way of doing it, and um, it helps you, it's one of those things where it's like a trivial project and it's very contrived and whatnot, but she manages to like really show you the value of each of the steps along the way. Uh, hmm. So I really enjoyed that too. And again, it's in Ruby, but I still totally got it. Right.
0: Yeah. Cool. That's, that's awesome. Uh, when it, So I know we're, we're up on our time here. I, ha- I think I have like s- seven short questions. Are we still doing okay. good on time? Yeah, go for it. Okay, cool, man. Uh, when it comes to documenting your work, what are some tips you have for someone that struggles in that department? Cause you document, you were talking about documenting like everything all the time type thing.
1: Yeah. Um, and again, that gets to that idea of like externalizing your, your knowledge, right? Mm. Um, often it's, it's for your own good too, right? Uh, six months from now, you won't remember why you wrote a line of code, um, And especially if it's a weird line of code, you'll be like, why did I do that? Uh, And if you leave yourself some breadcrumbs along the way, um, that kind of thing is important. So um, I will say that I think self-documenting code is not really real. Um, Certainly like you, there's a big gap from like writing code that works to writing readable code, um, but I don't think readable code is self-documented. So leaving comments, is okay you should do it especially when um there's context needed or uh you know you maybe you've created an abstraction that makes things more performant under the hood but it makes it less clear at that level of abstraction like what's going on Mm -hmm. leave comments help people understand uh, that person could be you again in six months right so um just get in the practice of it Like it really is a a discipline almost that you have to just kind of keep fresh on. So um, one thing I started doing is I edited my git commit template to prompt me every time to like provide a title and like a longer body. And even if it's a pretty trivial change, I'll usually add a little, just like one longer sentence. That's like, here's why I did this. the I, there was another there was like a tweet today that was like name git commit messages that every project probably has, and everyone was just like more fixes or whatever. Um, so I try to try to not do that because, um, yeah. I don't know. So as you as you uh pick up those things again, it's this idea of like a repeatable process too. I found myself. Wanting to write better messages, but I was like, well, I always kind of forget to do it and all that So i was just just like I'll just make my commit template tell me to do that and then I won't forget. Um, Yeah, so That's what I would say awesome
0: and uh, so the only reason I bring this up is because I use PyTest and I am not aware of what's going on and uh, so with these open source libraries they only they only work if they're thriving, the community is thriving. So you can choose to answer this or not, but I was curious, just being as objective as possible, how would you describe the current PyTest core development team issues?
1: Yeah, I can't speak to it super well because I didn't follow it or dive into it much. And I think the people who, uh, there's a few people who ended up kind of leaving for now, Uh, they're stepping away, right? Um, They were all also very objective and like, Kind in a way about it, um they just said like there are reasons I'm stepping away. It's been difficult working on the project with um I mean they all said kind of like an individual but they didn't name names and they they kind of like left out any particular blame or like specific details and just said like things need to improve. let's work on trying to get things to improve um, mm-hmm. so the the takeaway I think is like in i shouldn't even qualify it with in open source like in any in any forum where you're collaborating with people uh try to assume good intent have good intent yourself and be like foster foster a collaborative relationship and environment because as soon as you do anything i don't know everyone's their own protagonist but (laughs) as soon as you do anything that like isn't the right thing uh, to to most everyone else um it just kind of like puts everyone's burnout meter uh, up a little bit right yeah so that's that's the takeaway i think
0: do you think you'll continue to use pytest or are you going to start looking for something else like is the package in jeopardy or is it just
1: I don't, think it's, I don't okay. think it's to that degree. And I actually sort of hope that, you know, I think the response was enough that there hopefully will be like movement on that um, and make improvements on that on the sooner side. That, that's yeah. my hope anyway. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's in jeopardy per se. Um, I think it's widely useful enough that, um, you know, other people will hopefully be able to also come in and start contributing. Um okay Yeah, I'll certainly continue using it.
0: Cool. Yeah, I had to pry a little bit because I wasn't even aware. And uh when you said that I was like, Well, oh, what? Let me I gotta <laughs> dig into this. So all right, well thanks for sharing that. Uh what learning resources would you recommend for someone that wants to sprinkle a little Vue.js on their Django powered web
1: app. Uh good question. There's this plugin called Django Webpack. Um okay. that is very helpful um i think it basically makes how does it work i forget how the integration itself actually works but ultimately it kind of like lets you reference your webpack bundles using a template tag um hmm. there's like an intermediate json file that it produces somewhere that connects the two um but that was a uh, that was a heck of a lot easier to use than like trying to manage all that stuff yourself. Um, okay. And then I don't know. The other part would just be like learning Vue, I suppose. <laughs> um, Views Views documentation I think is is pretty decent. Um, so you know if you want, if you like projects with good documentation, Django and Vue both are actually pretty pretty good. Django's documentation is stellar.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, Django REST has really awesome documentation as well. Nice. Yeah, cool, man. Um, Okay, so what career advice would you give your teenage self?
1: Oh. Uh, I don't know. So... I I got a degree in sort of software and hardware mix, like computer engineering. Um, And I've mostly not used the hardware part of that in my career at all. Hmm. Um, And I'm okay with that, Uh, but I'm still like happy I learned that stuff too. So uh, in a way, I guess I would make sure that I did that again if I were to repeat it. So like learn stuff because it's interesting. But don't worry if you don't use it um, obviously don't spend all your time on something you'll never use um, but i think sort of this idea of broadening your your horizons and having kind of like lateral thinking and tangential thinking between disciplines or between uh areas uh, is how creative things happen so cool
0: that's really cool um are you much of a
1: book reader I like to think I am, but I honestly have not been doing much reading in the last few years. Uh, I have a very big bookshelf in my bedroom and none of those books have been, have been touched lately.
0: Fair enough. Let let me ask you this. Like if there was, if there was a book that you'd like to crack open sometime this year, what would be kind of like the book that you think you would gravitate towards? It's
1: a good question. Um, It would probably be like a non-programming book for sure. I do have, like, I have a number of them that I know I need to read there too. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm so I'm so like far removed from popular lit right now. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to probably be able to come up with anything on the spot, which is I, I'm a little sad about. But that's gonna be my answer for now.
0: No worries, man. I, uh, I found a lot of um, inspiration from the seven habits of highly effective people. And it's not like a new book either. The, I think the guy's like dead now basically, but (laughs) uh, yeah, they, if you get the audio book, he'll read it to you. It's pretty cool. Um, if you're into like the professional or personal development stuff, but
1: yeah, I I definitely do like some online reading in that area. So I wouldn't mind checking that out.
0: Cool. Yeah. Stephen Covey, man. Um, so what would you say is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh man.
1: <laughs> um, I I think it's a pretty recent one, which is maybe a cop out, but uh, I think... We, we do a fair amount of like presenting things we've done to the org, uh, like to the broader audience. Um, and since I do some conference speaking, uh, it applies there too. Um, I got some feedback on like a presentation uh, that was basically like, it was from someone with like little context about uh, what I do on my team day to day. And also, is not in an engineering role, so they, uh, you know, have even less context about tools and all that stuff. Um, and so, after this presentation, he said, uh, "You know, I'm I trust your team. Like, I I know some of the output I've seen is really good. So, like, I trust that you're doing valuable work. But I have no idea what the hell you were just talking about, <laughs> basically, right?" And yeah. they they said it in a nice way, and like followed that up with specifics. And the the takeaway was like basically always present to the audience at hand, right? Uh, so that means speaking at a level that uh, everyone can derive what the value is uh, of, what you're, of what you're saying you did. Um, and then usually providing specific evidence of why that thing was as valuable as you're, you're purporting it to be. So um, I've been practicing getting better at that. Because I, I certainly could have said that about the thing I had presented on if I were in that headspace, so yeah um, I think that you know to do an effective conference talk, you would have to do the same thing um, and I've done some, so hopefully I did better there than this particular moment, but um, then you know in business if you're trying to sell something it, it's all about selling things really like mm-hmm. any anything you're presenting on you're trying to if not, if not get someone's money, you're like trying to at least get them to agree on the thing you did being valuable. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah. That's certainly worthy of a best piece of advice. I mean, that will serve you. That'll pay dividends the rest of your life. If you can practice it, like just the, the proverbial you out there, like that's, I mean, man, I'm, I'm definitely going to be shooting for it too. And it, it's a great theme to kind of close with. Cause that's what we opened with yeah. was the whole like uh, you know, fourth grader, how would you explain this? I, I would argue it was kind of a complex topic. Like how would you explain that to like, you know, that, that level of understanding. So cool, man. Thank you so much. Um, okay. So this wouldn't be the profitable Python if we didn't bring this up. So what are your top three tips for someone to monetize their programming skills?
1: Um, I think the idea of, uh, building sort of a repeatable process for yourself, um, that gets, that gets kind of the logistics out of the way. And then you can focus on, um, sort of building things and solving problems. Um, what else? I guess this idea of like selling, selling what you're doing is valuable, uh, certainly makes sense. Um, you know, if you especially if you're kind of like bidding on a project against others, um, you have to be able to kind of communicate what it is that makes you different. Um, Cause it's not always about dollar amounts. Um, and then um, maybe back to that idea about maintaining a collaborative nature and uh, fostering a collaborative environment. Um, mm-hmm. Because if if you're doing client work or if you're working on a team or, or wherever um, that's what, Provides that kind of sustainability, right? Yeah. So, like, awesome. The the automation gets you going. The saleability gets you in the door, and the collaborative nature keeps you there.
0: That's solid, man. Yeah. Uh, that's that's really solid. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, man, we we have gone in many uh, rabbit trails here today. and uh, I was just curious if we had to like kind of bring everybody back what is kind of the message you want them to leave with
1: today good question Uh, I think it gets to it gets back to this idea of the learning tree that we also talked about early on Um, explore all your avenues and sort of map out what it is you want to do. And then if you, even if you don't get to everything, you still have it all recorded there and you can kind of like regroup and, and get back on track. So mm, amazing. I, think that, I think that model applies to like most of what we just talked about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing, man. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, okay. So where do they go to uh, connect with you after the show Where's your preferred method and what is your call to action? We got this, the book is out, uh, you've got a website. So what is, yeah, what's your call to action here? Uh,
1: So I'm easy as Python on Twitter. uh, And I have kind of a personal blog at dane.engineering or dane.dev. And then uh, you can find the book at thepythonpro.com in all its various forms. So awesome. Check that all out.
0: Awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much. This has been an incredible experience. Thank you for uh, giving all this uh, information and kind of living living by that uh, principle that that you shared. And uh, so I, I hope people got a lot of value out of this. But uh,
1: yeah, I thank really you so much. Appreciate man. you having me on, Ben. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, folks, peace out.